everyone, and welcome back. Season two of Is It Legal starts right now. Thank you for joining us. I am your host, Dave Plow. This week, I'm bringing you a conversation with Jennifer Droback. Jennifer is an accomplished lawyer who decided her calling in law was to be a professor. She is currently the R. Bruce Townsend Professor of Law and our sponsor, the IU McKinney School of Law. And I am telling you, this conversation has it all. If you're interested in equality, divorce, or witchcraft, yeah, I just said witchcraft, then you're going to enjoy this episode. But before we move on to the other topics, let's start off by finding out how Jennifer ended up working in law. I had two choices as a young girl. I could study medicine or law. I started with medicine, and Stanford Chem 131 convinced me that it should be law. <laughs> Why did you only have two? Cho- Why did you feel like you only had two choices? Was that your parents? That was my dad. Yeah. Yeah. There were only doctors and lawyers in this world. <laughs> I think he might have have added engineer to the list later on <laughs> after to the, try and appease you a little bit. Well, to it, he with six kids, he realized we weren't going to all be doctors and lawyers. So, but that's what it was. So you're one of six. Where do you land in that? I'm number one. You're number one. I changed a lot of diapers. <laughs> so uh, why the so when you started law, you said uh, medicine kind of convinced you that law was the way to go. Were you drawn to law at that point, or was it just like, I don't like this, and this is my other option? I actually dropped out of law school Mm -hmm. the first time I was there. I went to Hastings, and it was, I wasn't ready. And, you know, I had been, I was there just because. Uh, So I became a teacher, uh, junior high and high school, and I realized that I couldn't both pay rent and eat in Palo Alto on my teacher's salary. So at that point, I applied to Stanford Law School, retook the LSAT. I was totally driven and committed. And then I loved law school and loved the people I was studying with and loved studying law. Okay. Uh, Why the interest in sexual harassment? Because most of your books, most of your publications are all I mean, they cover a lot of ground, but a lot of them seem to focus on sexual harassment. A lot of them do focus on sexual harassment. And it's because I clerked for a year for a judge in Dallas, Texas. But then after a divorce, I was trying to get a job, couldn't get a job. And so I opened up my own law firm uh, in the same building as my dad and my uncle and was desperate for cases. They fed me a couple of little cases. I worked for them as a contract attorney. But the first really big case I got, I got after I had been talking at a women's bar luncheon. And someone from the women's bar knew that I was interested in civil rights work. This was in 1991, um, 92. And The case they referred me was a sexual harassment case, and I really didn't know what that was. I had never taken employment law or employment discrimination law, but I was really interested in the topic. Anita Hill had just done her testimony before the U.S. Senate, and so I took this case, and it turned out to be a case that ended up in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about law or the history of law, but it does seem, from what I've read, that the Anita Hill was kind of the beginning of real sexual harassment law as we know it. was. So was taking the case almost like breaking new ground for you? Or? It was. Yeah. It was. Uh, the Sexual harassment, the 1964 Civil Rights Act 
has been around since 1964, and, and, and it prohibited discrimination in employment on the basis of sex. But that was not interpreted until 1986 by uh, a Supreme Court case, uh, Meritor Savings Bank versus Vinson, um, and to, to include sexual harassment. So even, and even in 1986, people really didn't know what sexual harassment was or would have laughed at you if you had had started talking about the behaviors, which we now know are completely verboten in the workplace. So Anita Hill really did put it on the national map when she accused Clarence Thomas, now Justice Clarence Thomas, of sexual harassment. And so when I took this case in 1991, this was a software company, and the founder and CEO of the company was the accused perpetrator who had been allegedly sexually harassing his secretaries. And it was an extremely high-profile case in Silicon Valley, one of its first, and then led to a lot of other cases and some very uh, good publicity for me and for my law firm. Did the case spark your interest, or was it more just like after you did this, you became known as someone that did this? I was really dedicated to helping women in the workplace. So it was something that was interesting for me. I felt like I was doing good work and not just good paying work. Um, and the case was resolved to the satisfaction of all parties <laughs> uh, less than six months after I filed it. Okay. So it was a really around. interesting good case that settled uh, early. Right. How, so, long, how long did you have your own firm? Uh, from 1992, approximately, until I came here in 2001. Oh, well, what caused you to come here? What caused you to decide that you'd become a law professor? Being in a law practice is stressful, and being a single parent and a solo practitioner is exponentially more stressful. And while I loved law, I loved really being in law school more than I loved practicing law. Practicing law has wonderful aspects, but I loved the intellectual inquiry. So I knew that a career that was more geared towards academic inquiry would be better for me. And bottom line, I had a young child and I wanted to be a good parent, and I thought that an academic schedule would be more conducive to being a good parent, and it was. So um, you started here in 2001. You said uh, you've been here ever since. What is it that really draws you to teaching, though? Like, what draws you to telling other students how to do it? Well, I think with teaching, there. First of all, I I tend to take pride in trying to make my courses interesting. Uh, dynamic, um, cutting edge as far as incorporating new law. And I teach courses like sexual harassment law and family law, where we're dealing with same-sex marriage and sex and money and power and some pretty interesting topics. But I love the moment where we're dealing with a difficult issue and I see the light dawn with a student. Um, I had a case I was teaching out of my sexual harassment law textbook, and we were teaching about 
uh, transgendered persons in the workplace. And there was an issue, and this was, this was back early, 1991-92, when the status of transgendered persons wasn't really as focal as it is now. And I had a, a student, uh, an African-American student, who really thought that, that discrimination was acceptable towards transgendered persons because you didn't want someone who was transgendered using the same restroom that you were using. And so I was trying to understand with her why she was having a problem with having someone who was in transgendered using the restroom. And someone who never spoke in this class of almost 80 students raised her hand, so I immediately called on her. And she said, I'm from a small town in northern Indiana, and I'd never seen a black person when I got to this school. And I was afraid to use the bathroom with my black female peers. And I, I'm ashamed to admit that now, but I see the same thing happening with transgendered people now. And I look back at my African-American student, and I could see the light dawning almost in a wave across the room, you know, because we talk about, you know, the use of water fountains, drinking fountains by African-Americans. And, and I could see this wave of understanding dawning as the relationship between discrimination based on race and based on um, minority sexual status or uh, sexual identity came up. And my African-American student said, no, it's completely different. So you're not going to reach everybody all the time. But that was one of those moments that I could not have created a magical moment in teaching where understanding dawns. And as a teacher, I live for those moments. When we come back, we're going to have more with Jennifer Droback, including talks of divorce and witchcraft. But first, our sponsors at IU McKinney School of Law are proud to be rated as a best value school again in 2015 by National Jurist Magazine. Find out more about their other accolades on their website at mckinneylaw.iu.edu slash about slash recognition. Getting back to Professor Drobeck, I asked her why she was so interested in human rights law. This is a great country we live in, and we can afford to be fair with our citizens. And so when we're not, I think there's room for improvement. And so I would like to be part of the movement that makes the United States of America a nation that uh, works for everyone. And it's that simple. I also have experienced discrimination in my lifetime as a woman um, and, and as uh, a person of a vaguer sexual identity. And um, I can pass in almost any instance, but sometimes I've been stopped. I had an employer once tell me, well, I figure you're making health benefits from your husband and your parents are paying for school, so I'm willing to offer you this amount of money for your teaching. And I just looked at him and said, my parents, my husband, these people have nothing to do with what I should be earning as a salary. Um, when I was going through um, a divorce in Dallas, Texas, um, I was accused of being a satanic witch as part of the custody allegation. And... That so threw me that someone 
could be accused of being a witch. Now, I'm, I'm not a witch. <laughs> I had assumed as much. <laughs> Although, I, you know, some of my students may think I am, but I'm really not. And it just I found it shocking that this was the play to the jury. Uh, Texas is one of the only states where a jury can decide custody. So actually, this case, this witchcraft trial, is going to be the topic of a sabbatical that I'm project that I'm working on starting in December. Um, oh. I just, uh, if you don't mind talking yeah, about sure. it for a second, like we're talking 90s, right? I mean, 1991. Guessing, 1991. So in 1991, someone saw fit to bring to a court and say you could be a witch. That's right. I got a subpoena to bring to a deposition, a subpoena for items of the occult, uh, for... Uh, I can't remember exactly what it said, but I have it upstairs in my files um, because I saved everything. I was so stunned by what they were asking for. But they basically were asking me for a magic wand and, you know, <laughs> a cape and, you know, like a black hat. Right. And I had a black felt cap, you know, that you wear in the winter. I'm but guilty, yeah. Yeah, I... I so is that a regular thing? Does that or no, was that a regular thing? No, it was just something that was, they kind of pulled out and decided to run with. That was unusual. I do, I do have interesting intellectual interests, and I did get a master's in history. And the period I studied early modern England was a period when they were engaged in witchcraft trials, and so I studied them as part of my master's program and was very interested in how women were scapegoated back in the 17th and century and earlier. So. And that led me to an interest in modern-day um, neo-pagan religions and, right. and, and religions of all kinds. I, I had over 200 books in my library, my personal library, which were subpoenaed. Uh, that's what uh, was, that was my next question. Yeah. So, and, and being at that point a three-degree holder from Stanford University, I thought that it was pretty much my right to read or think about anything I wanted. Now, the problem was I was not a Wiccan, um, although Wicca, which is the religion of benevolent white witches, I now understand, uh, is part of the US Army Chaplain's Manual, and they have to understand it in order to cater, not cater to, to but, yeah. but, but service um, our, our soldiers uh, that are that practice Wicca. So it's, but if I had been Wiccan, I would have had a First Amendment right to this religion, but because I wasn't and it was being used really to tarnish and taint me, it really was like a witchcraft allegation. So as I'm going to look at this case in the fall, it's going to be about the legal aspects of why you would bring an allegation like that, because there were certain reasons I wanted to leave Texas. And now, as part of family law, uh, the custodial parent does not have a right to leave Dallas and contiguous counties. So the non, what they call in Texas, non-possessory parent <laughs> uh, can can prohibit a move. And I announced early on, I want to go back to California, where my family is, where I know I can get a job. And so this was an allegation in order to for the father to get custody and so that I wouldn't take the child out of Texas. So that legal aspect is one aspect of the case, but the witchcraft allegation 
just added a whole new dimension. That's a uh, whole level of interesting right there. Is, is that something that can still be brought up? Can they still do that in Texas? Sure. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Texas, you can still have a jury trial. For, so we had a week-long jury trial in a divorce matter. Now, most cases don't go to trial, but and it's extremely expensive. The money that the litigants, we, spent on that case, we, we could have more than afforded uh, than our daughter's undergraduate education at Stanford. You mentioned that that's going to be a project that you work on in your upcoming sabbatical. Right. Uh, you've got a number of projects. Uh, if you look you up, if you do a Google search of yourself, you'll see you have projects going on all the time. I'm sure you know this. I do. <laughs> <laughs> what, what else do you have that's either upcoming or that's currently kind of that you should be getting out there? Well, a huge project that I've been working on for years is a book that the University of Chicago Press uh, will be publishing hopefully in November or December. I'm working on the index right now. And it's a book uh, called The Sexual Exploitation of uh, Teenagers. And, or it might be a sexual exploitation of adolescents. I'm not sure how that's going to end up. Oh, okay. They're going to change it, maybe. Uh, Well, I'm not sure. Okay. So, um, but anyway, it's the sexual exploitation of teenagers. And it, it's about the neurological and psychosocial development of of adolescents and how that influences their decision-making abilities, particularly their decision-making with respect to consent to sex. Okay. So this is important in sexual harassment law, returning to my uh, first line of study. It's important to sexual harassment law because in a sexual harassment case, if the target consents, there is no sexual harassment, no harm, no foul. You've consented. But acquiescence is not the same as consent. So you could coerce someone and then get them to acquiesce to giving you sexual favors, um, and it would still constitute sexual harassment. So the question arises, what about with working teenagers or teenagers in schools and their consent? Should their consent act as a complete bar to civil damages and to liability. And you would think that because their consent is no defense in a statutory rape case, that their consent would be invalid in a civil case. But in 13 states, you have the law operating to arrive at completely different results in the criminal and civil arenas. I actually think California has just changed their law. I have to, I have to check on that because of actually this issue that, that we've been talking about. But it's really interesting to track the neurological and psychosocial development of teenagers because if they're developing in a way that requires that they have experiences... We want them almost to have experiences in padded cells where they're not hurting each other and the rest of the world, but also so that they're learning and and so that their synapses are developing in ways that they need to. So that's uh, so I track sexual harassment in schools, in the military, at work for these teenagers, and I talk about past law, bias, and where we should be going with this topic based on my law experience, my teaching experience, my parenting experience, and 
anything else that comes to mind. And when did you say that's coming out? That's coming out at the end of this year, and I'll be doing a lecture here at IU McKinney on March 1st. Um, in fact, I'm going to be talking about a chapter in the book that the publisher at one point wanted me to take out because it's uh, so controversial, and that was sexual harassment in public. They said it. Uh, I talk about sexual harassment in malls, in music, um, in fashion, and they said that, that it wasn't highly enough documented and that I would be running into First Amendment concerns if I talked about literature and music. And I said, we'll be running into First Amendment concerns <laughs> if you don't let me do this. Right. So you said I you realized you're talking to a lawyer here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in the book and I'll talk about it on March 1st. All right, great. And then the other thing that you've got going on, but you're uh, part of a Title IX group, right? Right. I, I have uh, just uh, committed to be the chief academic officer of a new limited liability corporation called uh, Equite. Uh, Equite was the uh, Roman goddess of equity and fairness. Um, and this is a, um, an organization that will be dedicated to, is dedicated to um, helping universities with Title IX compliance. So we'll be doing uh, Title IX trainings, investigations, um, and other types of consulting uh, to make sure that uh, we can eliminate discrimination and sexual assault on universities and college campuses. For the people that may not know, can you go ahead and explain what Title IX is? Sure. Title IX is part of the 1972 education amendments, and uh, it prohibits discrimination in educational opportunities. So it basically, most people th understand Title IX to open up uh, sports, sports and women's sports and, and women's NCAA. Yep. NC2A and um, women's sports. But Title IX works across the board to ensure that women have equal access to educational opportunities. So, uh, so it, it applies here at McKinney. And, and universities, IU takes it very seriously. And a lot are dedicated to ensuring uh, equality and opportunity for women. But we also ha have a serious op um, problem on university and college campuses right now with sexual assault. And in fact, um, in November, I will be... Um, uh, moderating a screening of the new documentary film on sexual assault in college campuses, uh, The Hunting Ground. And I'm working with uh, SAPR, which is the sexual assault prevention group on uh, the IUPUI campus, and the Office for Women uh, will be co-sponsoring uh, that screening and panel discussion. So that's another exciting um event coming up. Like I said, if you Google yourself, you'll see you're a very busy woman. <laughs> I am. Uh, I've got everything I need. Do you have anything else you'd like to add to this? I think that's about it. Okay. Well, great. Thank you for coming on and doing the podcast. I appreciate Thank you it. so much. All right, everyone. That is it for Professor Jennifer Drobeck. My thanks to her for coming to speak with me and my thanks to you guys for sticking around and listening to us all through season one and getting us this season two also i've got to thank our sponsors the iu mckinney school of law who would like you to know they offer the master of jurisprudence or mj degree for those interested in learning more about the law but not wishing to practice 
If you work in human resources, healthcare, law enforcement, business, journalism, or a variety of other fields, a better understanding of the law can enhance and even advance your career. With the MJ, you'll have an individualized course of study. More information on the website, mckinneylaw.iu.edu, or you can call the MJ Program Director, Professor Debbie McGregor, at 317-274-2608. We will be back in two weeks with an all-new episode of Is It Legal? But to tide you over, feel free to visit our website at isitlegalpod.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash isitlegal to keep up to date with what's happening and to check out past episodes. And as always, I'll catch you next time on... Is it legal?